I am Rick Driggers. I'm one of your pastors here. Um, good morning. Years ago, Lynette and I were in Austin. And I was leading a small group, and we had a woman visitor that night that about halfway through the meeting, she began to just weep. And someone said, what's the matter? She said, well, I've just never been in a group like this, that it was so loving and accepting and comfortable. You guys are just great. I, I just love being here. And you know, that was my first time to really embrace and realize the, the beauty of brethren dwelling together in unity, which is our, our verse in, in the Psalms 133. <clears throat> How delightful and good it is. <clears throat> in this psalm, if you, if you look at it, <clears throat> it says... You got some water up here, please? <clears throat> Sorry. In the psalm, it says, talks about both dew and the oil. Describe a downflowing unity in Christian community. And that kind of unity can have the good effect of abundance and overflowing that spreads over the spiritual body of the church. It's a striking image of the influence of the unity of brotherly love. So this morning we'll be taking a look at some of the different aspects and angles of unity, uh, culture, devices, spiritual warfare, even Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his comments from his book, Life Together. So let's first look at cultural individualism. Some people when they look at their place in the body, they don't really realize uh, that they're a part in a way that gives them an identity. And it's an identity to be cherished, especially since the influences of history and culture have begun to shift us away to, toward more individualism. So I ask you today, <clears throat> is your Christianity is your identity in Christ individual, you and God? Or does it also include and come from being part of the brotherhood of believers? We live in a me-centered culture. It started with the fall, gained momentum through the centuries. 1700 was the Enlightenment. James Bond, self-sufficiency, rugged individualism. <clears throat> the self-esteem movement of the 70s. We talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus, which is a good thing. But the concern here is that the cultural bias towards self-sufficiency may have led us to mistakenly adopt the perspective that our walk is personal between me and God and dependence on others is actually a weakness. And what about devices? <clears throat> Modern technology has given some people the impression that they could be Christians from a distance. But online community cannot come and support you and me practically when we need it. And they can only see what you put in front of them. They do not see the full vulnerable you that is that a physically present community would come to know by doing life with you. And then there's spiritual warfare. With regard to damaging the church, division is still one of the enemy's most 
effective strategies. You know, here, we, we all want to walk in the Spirit. We want to be filled with the Spirit. But listen to what D.L. Moody has observed about that. I have never known, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. And then there's gossip. Gossip among is still another destructive tool that Satan uses. Well, not only is it our duty not to be the source of gossip, it is also our duty not to participate and listen to gossip. James 4.17 says, Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. And then there's maintaining unity. God's word exhorts us to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. Ephesians 4.3 There are times in my marriage relationship when I discern a dispute surfacing and instead of slowing down and bringing God into the situation to give me the grace I need, instead of doing that, I go to my male logic closet and, <laughs> and pull out my long black attorney robe and launch into an insidious monologue to debate her into submission, which makes things worse. And I wish I could say I, I learned the hard way, but I'm ashamed to confess that occasionally I still value winning the argument more than I value our relationship. And then to make matters worse, I have an unspoken, impatient resentment that is taking so long to resolve it and get over it. Something that I started. It, it's unspoken, but Lynette can sense it, which makes her feel devalued and unloved. So do you ever wonder about the occasional difficulty that we may have getting along with other believers? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is a rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. That's a really big difference than the way many of us think about that. <clears throat> because it's a supernatural unity. It's not based on our relational skills. It comes from being in Christ and gospel-centered. And here's an important question for you. Do you move toward people? Or do you wait for people to move toward you? Jesus always moved toward people. Now, what are some ways we can do our part to preserve unity in the church? There's four of them. Number one is remember our common identity. Philippians 2 speaks of being like-minded, having the same joy, being one in spirit and of one mind. That doesn't mean that we think the same way all the time. We can differ in our convictions, or shall we say our non-essentials, like watching movies or how you school your children or modesty. In these things, we can respect one another's liberty. What it does mean is that we share a common identity in Jesus Christ. We are all sinners, and we can all rejoice in the gospel together. Good. Number two, stay humble. 
When we are mindful of our own weaknesses, we are less likely to act self-righteous and judgmental and more likely to be gracious toward our brothers and sisters. Humility is a real key. Number three is believe the best in other people. This is from the Amplified Version, which embraces the, the fullness of the original language a little better. Love bears all things, regardless of what comes. It believes all things, looking for the best in each one. Hopes all things, remains steadfast during difficult times. Endures all things without weakening. Amen. Number four, work through conflict. When you're close to someone, it's inevitable that your combined faults and differences will lead to some conflict. That's the turf. The question is, how will we respond to it when it occurs? And remember, this is really a good thing as far as perspective. Conflict is an, is an opportunity. It's not an accident. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Some of the relational rubs that we get into is God designed specifically to bring out specific character traits in Christ to us. Conflict provides opportunities to grow spiritually, build better relationships, and glorify God. And regarding conflicts, if an offense is minor, the Bible encourages us to overlook that offense, to forgive the person, keep the relationship without ever even mentioning it. But have you ever been in a relationship where you were hurt or offended and you decided you were going to overlook the offense? Be very careful when you get to that point and you say you're going to forgive it and, and forget it because it can be so deceiving. We want to follow the biblical way and overlook it, but sometimes we just can't. We still think about it, but we don't want to go to that person and go through the hassle and the hardship of, of working it out. It's hard. it's hard, it's uncomfortable. And usually some time passes and we become vulnerable to both gossip and at the worst, bitterness which the, the word really warns us against. So if we can't overlook it, we're called to go to that person privately. And if that doesn't go well, we're to take others with us, according to Matthew 18. But restoring a broken relationship is so important to God that he commands us to take the initiative <clears throat> to reconcile not only when we have been offended, but when we suspect that we may be the offender. So it says like this in Matthew 5, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is clear. Conflict and division is to be resolved quickly. Unity is more important to God than worship. <clears throat> Romans 12, 18 says, Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. That is eager proactivity to seek unity. <clears throat>
And let's remember, <clears throat> when a hurt or a conflict surfaces, it's wisdom to just slow down. There might be a misunderstanding, a simple misunderstanding that would clear the whole thing up. That our perception could be inaccurate. <clears throat> Rick Thomas is a uh, very experienced biblical counselor. And he says this regarding how our frame of reference can sometimes distort what we perceive to be happening. No person, no person perfectly interprets or reproduces what has happened to them because of finiteness and fallenness. Every person practices a little bit of reconstruction. He has counseled hundreds of couples and he says they can't even reconstruct their weekend accurately. We all have a skewed interpretive grid tilting toward the finite fallen tendencies. This perspective in itself should cause anyone to be suspicious of their perception of what happened. Here's a very helpful phrase from David Pallison, another very experienced counselor. And just, just remember this, put it in your back pocket and remember it. We all have a self-serving bias, all of us. And regarding liberty under unity, Augustine gave us a very helpful, quick phrase. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. R.C. Sproul is one of my favorite teachers. He says, every converted person becomes in Christ at the time Christ enters into the believer. If I'm in Christ and you are in Christ and he is in us, then we experience a profound unity in Christ. If we see others that way, we can enjoy a like-minded connection that can bring peace and a sense of belonging with one another. <clears throat> Dietrich von Bonhoeffer also uh, has a very insightful comment on the difference between human love and spiritual love. Human love is shallow and self-serving. In other words, as long as you're delivering to me, I can continue to love you. In contrast, spiritual love comes from Jesus Christ and recognizes the true image of the other person which he has received from Jesus and creates freedom of the brethren under the word. It's a gospel-centered view of others. Can you see how that would be so helpful? And regarding your Christian identity, when you think about yourself as a Christian, do you think of your relationship with God as maybe attending church or reading your Bible? Maybe your devotions or prayer? Is that the way you think of your Christianity and who you are as a, as a Christian? Many of us would say we identify as a Christian through a personal relationship with God. That's individual identity. And that, in, that also can include fellowship with others. That's the corporate or collective identity. But could we be missing something here? Something important about the fellowship and bond among believers. Maybe what we're missing is a satisfying and profound sense of shared purpose and identity. 
Well, so my cell phone, that's a good one. <clears throat> a sweet sense of belonging and a zeal for taking our functioning place in the body of Christ. That's what we could be missing. While salvation is personal, the expression and practice of our Christian faith has never been purely private. Maybe what we're looking at here is the kind of relational bonding between men engaged in combat together. A, a relationship that is so profound that when these guys try to go back to civilian life, it's just empty. It's, it's lightweight. It's a letdown. And many of these, those soldiers, what they experienced together was so meaningful that they will re-enlist to put their life at risk again so they can get back to what they've loved so, so dearly and what they needed. These soldiers found a deeper level of identity together through a shared and meaningful mission together. They were energized in their teamwork contribution to a mission in which they believed. Now, are we not on mission together? Here's a question for us. Are you more of a spectator in church? When you walk into this sanctuary, are you attending another meeting? Do you feel, or do you feel like saying, I'm with my people, my team, my family. This is where I belong. We are gathering to joyfully worship our Lord and Savior together. Let's think through some things about Christianity being a shared, unified experience. Think about it. The scriptures, the letters of the New Testament, with a few exceptions, are addressed to groups of believers, not to individuals. The significance of this reality can transform how we see our own Christian identity. In the first century, first of all, very few people could read. The scriptures were typically read to a group of believers. And when they were circulated around, they were, led, they were read aloud to communities of believers gathered. Think about it. <clears throat> when, a, when a group of Christians, let's imagine yourself in a group of Christians. When a group of Christians heard that Jesus said, I say this to you these groups of Jesus followers that were gathered together looked around at each other and thought, well, he's saying that to us. We need to, after hearing the scriptures, they would begin to ask each other, how are we going to follow these words of Jesus? What do you think we ought to do in light of what Jesus just said? Are you catching this, the, the, the group? unity that was happening there in response to the Lord. They did not conceive of being Christian as something they did on their own when they left the church gathering. They did not consider their Christian discipleship as something separable from community. Christianity is not limited to a personal relationship with Jesus. The New Testament describes believers walking out their faith in a lifestyle of bonded togetherness. And together as image bearers, we experience some of Jesus between one another. And please hear this. We are baptized 
into one body, the body of Jesus, our so-called personal relationship with Jesus is indeed with his person, his body, of which all other believers are a part. Fingers don't have a relationship with Jesus apart from the hand. We were on a trip a couple weeks ago and bumped into a, a family from Canada. And in about three minutes, they went from strangers to warm friendship. <laughs> That's what we share together. Something beautiful and delightful. Don't take it for granted. And when you see the brothers and sisters gathered here, look at, look at everyone as part of your family, because we are. Somebody's got to say amen to that. <clears throat> Consider the one another's that we see in the New Testament, describing the relational rhythms of Christian community. It occurs 59 times in the New Testament. Do you think that kind of emphasis on relational harmony confirms the high value that God places on unity? I think so. What motivational priority did Jesus give us about our unity? He said in John 13, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, commented on that scripture and said, we cannot expect the world to believe the Father sent the Son that Jesus' claims are true and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality in the oneness of true Christians. And in our community life together, let's see one another through the gospel-centered lens of Colossians 3, which says, make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you so you must forgive others. Forgiveness is the crown jewel of Christianity. That's what some people have said. We Christians are the only ones who have a reason to forgive because we have been forgiven. In closing, Matthew 5, 9 conveys something very important to us about being peacemakers. And remember, <clears throat> we are searching for what it means to be a part of God's family and his church and how that feels, how that, what, where our, our identity is. The Christian Standard Version in Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The Message Version says, You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are in Christ and your place in God's family. I almost feel like I want to repeat that. You discover who you really are in Christ and your place in God's family. That conveys something that I hope that we're all seeing today, that our unity under Jesus is an identity an identity we can embrace and we can treasure and we can really realize our sense of mission and sense of belonging to one another, that we have a loving Father and we belong with His family and we find fulfillment in fitting in us what we do to, to, to the body. Well, <clears throat> 
May we all see the beauty of unity together as an identity and embrace with delight and zeal the sense of belonging and the sweet companionship and the collective joy and peace that is our family through Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We worship and glorify you as both our King and our Father. We confess that we are sinners in need of you, our Savior. And we thank you, Lord, for shining your light into our darkness. Thank you for the miracle-working grace that you give to us every day. Lord, help us maintain unity. Remind us and give us the grace to be peacemakers. And Lord, give us, a, give us the beautiful sense of family togetherness and camaraderie that you intended. And that the world will see that we are your people by our love for one another. And that love is the, the same love that you have shed abroad in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.